Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome. I'm your host, Charles Sizemore. And today, we are looking into the future here. Over the last couple of years, inflation has been the biggest, the biggest headline driving the financial markets, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing affecting your pocketbook. Inflation has been everywhere. But you go across the Pacific and you see a very different scenario today. China's CPI inflation for June, which is the last data we had, came in at a big fat zero. They had no inflation whatsoever in June. Their core inflation, which excludes food and energy, came in at about 0.4. So you have China at this tipping point where they may actually be sliding from inflation to deflation. That's interesting. We haven't seen that in this country for any prolonged period of time in quite a while. So to help me unpack this, figure out what it all means, what it might, you know, what the investment implications might be, I have brought on our resident macro genius here, Mr. Ian King. Welcome. Thanks, Charles. I'm, I'm flattered by that compliment. Also, we're looking into the future, and I also have to note that you're wearing your Back to the Future vest today as well. So I am. A little bit I of irony. <laughs> anyway. A um, <clears throat> what? A true classic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, what do you want to talk about? First of all, like the Chinese numbers, <laughs> I always take with a huge grain of salt, right? I mean, th- of they course. are Are you notorious. suggesting that China might might lie on their stats or bend the truth a little no, no I, I, they I, never would not china the, um, the issue is not so much you know does china manipulate their stats we know they do but but you have to assume that the manipulation is somewhat consistent so if you see trends you should be able to still roughly follow trends and in china it's it's interesting a post covid phenomenon for them has actually been falling inflation that they really have been struggling to catch a bid there mm-hmm. and what what we know what drives inflation at the end of the day it's too much money chasing too few goods now you could have too few goods because you're not producing enough because you've had supply bottlenecks you can have too much demand because interest rates are low spurring it deflation is basically the other side of that coin you have deflation when you have too many goods not enough people to buy them or you know not enough credit available to buy them that's when you get falling prices that's that's a very difficult environment to be in uh, ask anybody who lived through the Great Depression. Ask anybody who's you know lived through Japan's uh, kind of slow motion malaise of the last last thirty years. So China is here, and I guess the question is why. You know, there's a couple reasons. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that, but I know one of the reasons is is demographic. Um, you know, China's population is shrinking and aging. Older people buy less on credit. They buy less, they just buy less, period, but they also buy less of, of the things you tend to buy on credit, such as housing, such as uh, appliances, furniture, things like that. All of that sucks demand out of the system and does kind of contribute to sluggish prices. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, another driver, that that's kind of the negative aspect of deflation. There, There is a very positive driver of deflation, and that is, of course, technology. When we have new technology that enables us to, you know, do more with less, you know, get more, you know, higher productivity, that does push prices down. Technology is deflationary, and I, I know your, you know, your primary focus of study is is, is new technology and how that affects the capital markets. Mm-hmm. So uh, you tell me, you know, is what we're seeing in 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 China today this this lack of inflation that looks like it could be bleeding into deflation. Could something like that be in our near future? And what does that look like? 
I don't think that it is in the cards for the United States, but I also want to preface this by talking one more thing about deflation. It is the hardest problem for an economy and a central bank to contend with because when you start thinking about the prices of housing going down year over year and other assets, people are more likely to pay down the debt that they have on those houses than they are to take out more credit. And the economy only grows in so much as people are taking out credit, right? So, you know, think about if the price of your house is going up five or 10% every year, um, even though you might have more equity in the house, so it might lead you to take out a loan against the house and then, you know, put a pool in, in your backyard or, or, or build a deck. When the price or the value of your house is going down, the credit is also contracting that you can to take. And that is really what drives the economy. So you know, you and I have also touched on this, this idea that, that China's population has likely peaked and is coming down. A lot of it has to do with the, you know, the one child policy uh, that they've had for decades. And then the other issue is there's a mismatch in China between educated women and men in the sense that if you were a Chinese family 30 years ago and you, your first child was a girl, you couldn't have more kids. So you devoted all your resources into your daughter's learning and education. And now we're seeing that, you know, families that had two or three boys, their their children might not get the same education level as a family that had one daughter. And it leads to, you know, this issue where it's like women want to marry somebody who is on their equivalent and there just aren't as many available partners, which yeah, is the numbers just don't work out. Right. The numbers work out. And it's just it's 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 really hurting the birth rate in China. Which you know, if we if we look at estimates for their population at the at the end of the uh, century, could be half of what it is right now, which is a significant problem because you know if they built a lot of infrastructure, who's going to use that infrastructure if the population is well, declining? And, and importantly, you don't need to build more, and construction is a big driver of the economy. If you already mm -hmm. have more housing than you need, more freeways than you need, more you know fill in the blank than you need, you're, you're not building more. Yeah, and there's also some areas of of their cities where they're just like knocking buildings down because they built these ghost cities. Nobody moved in, so they're just knocking them down. Um, we, we had that in Detroit, by the way. I, I, I they had the housing crisis in Detroit was not the crisis you had everywhere else, which is mm -hmm. a shortage of housing. You actually had a surplus that was, and the surplus of housing was keeping you know it was it was basically a death spiral for the housing market. So you had a similar deal in Detroit where they just bulldozed houses in order to kind of regulate the supply. Uh, yeah, and so, so, but think about the idea of building cities right now, right? Like there was a point where China was building the equivalent of Houston almost every month. Um, and now we're going into a time period, I believe, that people are going to be leaving cities, moving to the suburbs because of a couple of dynamics. Number one is technology is allowing us to work from home. So you don't need to leave in a crowded city. You might only need to commute a couple of days a week, right? So you might as well just buy a house in the suburbs. I think we're seeing that dynamic in a lot of cities here in the United States where prices have gone up. Um, and so you know, th that that is going to be an issue for China to contend with, which is going to lead to even more deflation because there's no demand for the apartments that they've built. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. let's well, let's let's take this a slightly different direction, though. So I, we, we get like kind of at that macro level that kind of a dearth of demand can cause prices to fall. That kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of I know prices are going to fall. I'm not going to buy today. I'm going to wait until tomorrow or the next day or the next year, five years from now, because I know I'm going to pay less. That becomes mm -hmm. sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and it becomes harder to, to dig out of that. 
But beyond that, there's also this technological component to deflation. And while the U.S. will probably escape the worst parts of Chinese deflation, which is kind of demographic-based and all that, the, inflate, the, uh, the, te the technological component is something that likely will impact us. I, I know right now, our industry, well, we're dealing with a worker shortage. Yeah, we, we mm -hmm. don't have enough workers to demand our businesses. So every company in America is invested. They're filling the kitchen sink at artificial intelligence, at robotics, at automation, at anything they can do to kind of replace human labor or get more juice out of their, their, their human labor. So let's let's talk about that. Like, like, what trends do you see there, and 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 what's where where do you see that going? Well, obviously, we're entering into the golden age of AI, and I don't think that is any secret, uh, especially what we've seen this year. AI, JP Morgan, what's that? I've never heard uh, of that. <laughs> I, I read a report uh, last week that JP Morgan said that forty five percent of the gains in the stock market this year could be attributed to artificial intelligence. And that's not AI bots. That is people investing in AI companies, you know, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, Meta. Um, the, the other thing, too, is that when I think about how will the economy grow and how will we achieve widespread prosperity, the one um, economic indicator I look at is total factor of productivity. And that's basically like given a, a number of inputs, how much output can you get? And if you look at, and we'll, I'll, I'll show the chart that I, I spoke about uh, on the Banyan Edge Sunday um, update. Um, if you look at total factor productivity in the United States, you see that it climbs throughout the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, it flatlines in the 70s, a little bit of in the 80s, but it really takes off in the mid 90s with the advent of the internet. Um, and then it climbed to about the, the financial crisis. In, in the last decade, we haven't really seen well, a rise. I have a theory on that, by the way. What is it? The internet? The, uh, no, inter no, the uh, total factor productivity really leveled off around 2008 or so, right? Yep. When did the iPhone come out? Oh, you think that people are too busy on their iPhones doing things? Yes. They're, they're not putting enough effort into work? It, it is, uh, it, it's a difficult and hard to, to test hypothesis, but yes, that is actually my theory that uh, the advent of the iPhone destroyed productivity in America. I think of it like by 2010, a, a lot of companies had already absorbed whatever software they were going to use uh, to kind of eliminate a lot of middle market jobs. Of course, you yeah. had the, the digestion of the the technologies that were implemented in the right. days, of course. And, but. but if you look at the total factor productivity chart, it looks like, you know, you can't really run a technical analysis on economic indicator, but it looks like we're set to turn higher. And there's a number of things that are are coming, you know, with AI and generative AI self-driving cars and all types of uh, new use cases and developing, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and obviously, I, I think a huge use case that that's going to happen probably sooner than later is creating entertainment for yourself uh, using generative AI. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and it's ironic because, you know, I also think about what are the catalysts going to be, right? What's, what's going to pull this technology and forward and let people adopt it? And um, th there's the story. Have you ever heard of the automated elevator story? The automated elevator saga? Well, do tell us. Okay. So the automated elevator was invented in 1900. And just a side note. So like in New York City, they had no automated elevator. Nobody really used them before the, the 1940s. And um, I, my hedge fund was in a building right on Madison Square Park in this old cast iron building that was famous because the band Kiss had a recording studio on the second floor. 
So on a side note, we used to have like random KISS fans that would like break into the building and try to take photos <laughs> of the stairwell. But we had um, an, no automated elevator. We actually had this, the superintendent, Bobby, would have to, you know, it harkened to an olden days where you get in the cage and, and Bobby used to, you know, take you up to the sixth floor, which is where our, our fun was. And, uh, you know, it was kind of nice greeting someone every morning and saying hi to Bobby, talking about how the Mets are losing uh, again. And um, but but, the, you know, the problem, obviously, is like if Bobby wasn't there, then you had to like go up like five flights of stairs to get the elevator. Um, but um, the story about the automated elevator in New York is that uh, they didn't see widespread adoption initially for like 40 years. But then there was an elevator strike in New York City in 1945. And within six, there was no elevator operators. So people who worked in skyscrapers couldn't get to, you know, the 50th floor, or at least they had to like walk up steps. And it led to about $100 million in losses in tax receipts in New York in six months. So building managers decided, okay, we're just going to install uh, automated elevators everywhere. And, and people were skeptical at first, right? This is like a new technology. And no, you're going up 50 flights of, of you know, and there's a robot taking you up there. What, what if it falls? What if I die? What if, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the the elevator industry and and, and the, the building industry launched this like uh, uh, very um, uh, a wholesome campaign of grandmothers and children using the automated <laughs> elevators. And, and they also installed those big red buttons that you see in the elevators that say, you know, call in case of emergency, which most of them don't really work. Um, and, and it was the strike that led to the and, wide have you ever pressed one of them. They, they really don't work. I, I don't know if I've ever been stuck in an elevator, but, um, I have, they don't work. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> Um, so, but it, it rivals really what's happening right now with the writers and actors strike, right? So you have a generative technology in AI that's getting better and better every month. I think within a year or two, you're going to be able to produce your own 10 minute movie, let's say, okay, using generative AI. So you think of a concept, what you want to see, it'll, it'll come up with a movie for you. And it's at a time when you have these streaming companies like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple, that are spending tens of billions of dollars on content. And we all talk about technology doing more with less. I mean, one of the one of the points in the actor strike is they don't want these companies using their likeness and creating AI models of them. Um, and and the studios are, you know, they don't wanna they, they don't want to sign on a dotted line there because, you know, in the future, they're just gonna create their own generative actors and and create their own movies but i think but that you, do you watch black mirror on netflix by the way it's, it's the, some of the best dystopian sci-fi ever but uh yeah actually, the, the this this the last series the first episode had something that was similar where exactly was, they had a yeah. generative uh salma mm -hmm. hayek and yeah it was that was good stuff that show's been pretty predictive of the future by the way um if you look back at season one which i think was like five years ago there are some things that are happening right now uh, that season one predicted. So, you know, the, the I, creators of that show have the gift of prophecy. I, I am convinced they have been blessed with the gift to see the, the future. But anyway. well, I think they consult with futurists. Like, I think the writers talk to futurists to figure out what's happening in the next five, no, 10 no, years. No, I'm so convinced like... they get visions from 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 the almighty <laughs> that actually let them see the future. That, that That's what I'm suggesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those shows were actually written by ChatGPT this year. But um, so, you know, it, it just think about like, some of these ideas where it's like, you know, did you watch The Sopranos? Of course. Yeah, everybody watched The Sopranos. Like, but we don't know what happens to Tony at the end. We already have like our own theories, right? They get shot or like, who knows? Because they went black and they played that Journey song at the end. But it's like, 
imagine in a year or two, you can like tell tell AI to like create the next episode of The Sopranos. And 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 on that note, there's actually a, a funny show called Portlandia where it's like they binge watch this series. And then at the end of it, like they need more. So they kidnap the writer to make him write more episodes, which is, you know, sometimes I feel that way about some of these series. Oh, that's on- like the Stephen King. Uh, was it Misery? Uh <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe that Stephen King wrote something like that. But <laughs> anyway. and what's her name? And in the in the basement. So you know, my point is that the catalyst for generative AI and and the adoption is going to come faster because of what's happening now with the writers writers and the actor strike. And you know, I I just think that that Hollywood better watch itself because uh, we have seen. Um, major disruption in industries that thought that they had a stronghold in something, right? I mean, the idea that Netflix spends $15 billion a year on content, like that could be easily disrupted. And what would that do to Netflix's profit margins? I mean, the company would be, you know, infinitely profitable if it was much, it was able to produce this content, you know, in a way that it didn't need to like spend $100 million filming a series, uh, paying actors, you know, each $20 million or whatever they get uh, j- just to film, you know, 10 episodes. So so I think that is probably uh, a major disruption that I would watch out for. And at the same time, you know, Disney loses money on their streaming services, but they could actually be profitable in a couple of years uh, given generative AI. Yeah, no, for sure. At that point, you wouldn't like I, now it's cheaper to make an animated movie than it is to make a live action movie mm-hmm. because you, you have to pay. I mean, you know, it's not like it's free. You, you still have to pay people to animate. You still have to you still have to pay the voiceover actors. But with this, you wouldn't even need the voiceover actors anymore. Like, like that's just right. done by AI. Exactly. I mean, it's it's. It, I mean, it's kind of frightening, but it's good for the consumer, right? Because it's going to bring prices down. Uh, costs will come down for the companies and hopefully they will pass on some of that cost saving to their consumer. Cause I don't know about you. I cut my cord just to like save money. So I just stream everything, but I've got like, you know, 10 different services. Plus like I have to stream like live TV and then yeah, it it's almost as much as doubled my bill. by the time you add it all up. It's, <laughs> it's also, I, uh, I don't go to the movies that often, but once in a while I'll take my kids to see uh whatever, whatever the latest Marvel superhero flick mm-hmm. is or whatever. I'm always shocked by how expensive the tickets have become. And it, it becomes kind of a circular problem of, uh, you know, probably I would go to the movies more if they were cheaper. I, I don't go that often because it's expensive. And like, because probably a lot of people think like I do, they have to keep it expensive. So uh, anyway, this cycle. And also on that note, I think that the quality of TV program on Netflix and Amazon Prime is on par with movies. And, you know, you can watch these series that have like 10 episodes, right? So you get 10 hours. It's like a 10 hour movie and it allows more time for character development. Cause you know, you watch like a two hour movie and it's like, all right, you know, it's an action movie and there's a lot of action going on, but there's no, there's no plot line to follow or anything like that, which, you know, the, the, the one caveat I would say with generative AI, if we're making our own series, you you take away the idea that people can discuss series. So I do think that you're going to have some need some type of centralized creator because people want to, you know, 
get on a Zoom call and talk about like the last episode of Succession and what happened. You know, it, it, I, I, I think there is going to be room for like personalized uh, entertainment, but I think a lot of it is still going to be centralized and controlled by uh, Netflix and Apple and Amazon Prime because they also no, have the marketing budget. It, it does go them. back to the, kind of our central theme of, of the day is still just deflation. Mm -hmm. And what we are looking at is a massive compression of pricing in the entertainment industry, uh, even, even if you still have kind of some of the main studios producing the content, you still have, you know, the same people being the creative genius behind it, they're still going to need much, you know, far fewer people to execute, they're going to need, you know, they'll be able to charge a lower price, uh, and, and still make potentially much fatter profits. So that is kind of the, the positive side of deflation, uh, just for the world to see right here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll have deflation there, but you know we still have to contend with other areas of inflation that technology hasn't quite solved that in the economy. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll get to those one by one, right? So one last question, because <laughs> I'm sure our viewers are really curious. Oppenheimer or Barbie for you, Charles? I haven't seen either. Uh, okay. I do have a young daughter, so I'll probably get stuck seeing Barbie at some point. I've actually heard it's entertaining. Mm -hmm. uh, Oppenheimer would probably be more my style. Okay. Same here. My daughter's <laughs> too young to see Barbie. <laughs> I'm not well, taking a three-year-old to see Barbie, but anyway, maybe, maybe in five, 10 years, who knows? Yeah. When it streams on Netflix, we'll watch it yeah. then. <laughs> Another yeah. example of deflation, putting prices down. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's pivot again. So we, we we've talked about um, we, we've talked about deflation. Yeah, this this idea of falling prices. Falling prices, if done right, does not mean falling profits. There's still a lot of money to be made there, and we've talked about how AI is is a very big part of that. Now, I know that you've also been looking uh, you, you've been looking at some investment plays using AI, and I, I mm -hmm. know you've you found some you you like. So, why, why don't you share with us? Oh, I'm, I'm happy to. So, so um, you know, this is the year of AI and there are ways to invest in AI, right? So, you know, you could have bought NVIDIA or AMD, Microsoft. There's some smaller mid cap companies, which we have in, in some of our other services um, that, that have shown some, some pretty strong returns. Uh, but there's also ways to invest with a, with AI. Now, this is not something that, that we developed here at Banyan Hill, but I, my, my good friend, Keith Kaplan over at Tradesmith, worked with a team of, you know, uh, engineers and machine learning researchers to figure out how that a algorithm, you know, using the, the top levels of AI right now can find signals through the noise. Cause there's a lot of noise going on in the markets. Right. Always. But so it, it, it's hard for one person to, or like one human to like cipher through all different technical indicators, economic indicators, earnings reports, um, but I do think that what he has created uh, will enable people to boost their alpha in their portfolio. Now, a lot of the trades that he's developed are shorter term, two weeks, three weeks, a month. Um, but they have been very accurate in the back testing and as long as they've been running the system so far. But, you know, they're not what it's different from what we do, which is like we take like a minimum of a one year approach three, five-year approach to figure, you know, it, but, but it's easier to forecast where things are going to happen in the short term using all of these inputs and using machine learning. So I was able to speak to Keith. Uh, we, we put together a presentation. If people want to check it out, we can include the link in the, uh, in the show notes. But I, I do yeah. think what he has developed is groundbreaking. Um, and I also think there's a little bit of urgency here because I find that 
like things that Keith Kaplan develops, especially with like the VQ stop and Tradesmith, it's like you can get this through him now. Um, and there's advantages to it. Or, you know, in a couple of years, it takes for like Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, we'll come out with a similar platform, right? But by then, you're much further behind everybody news. else. Yeah, it's all news. So, you know, to me, it's always like you got to jump on and embrace whatever prevailing technology is uh, in this day and age. Um, and, and right now, it's obviously AI. Well, I, what I think is interesting about this is, you know, what is the essence of technical analysis? It, it's it's looking for patterns, right? It's mm -hmm. looking for, it's, it's pattern recognition. But at the end of the day, there's only so much the human eyes can see. There's only so much the human brain can, can process. And there's things, there's patterns that are happening under the scenes that you, you don't even see. And the beauty of a, of a program like this is it, it it's able to penetrate all of that. Like it, it's able to find patterns and, and even look at, at data sets that you didn't think to look at. You, know, you, you only have so much time in your day. You can't track everything. And beyond that, what works in the market in one window doesn't necessarily work in the next. You know, this maybe momentum's doing well right now. Maybe the value does well next week. I, I like or whatever. Pick pick your factor, right? The same factors don't always work all the time. So the beauty of a of, of a of a of a system like this is it, mm -hmm. it's able to identify what's working now, and that's that, that's nice. Like that's not something that you're you're going to be able to get on your own. Absolutely, and um. You know, did you hear my story about uh, Mr. Henry? I don't know that I did. Okay, so I I, I talked about this uh, on last week's uh, podcast. So when I was a trader on Wall Street, I worked with this guy. I'm not going to name him, but his I call call him Mr. Henry because he made reservations for us. A Smith Walensky once and used that name. Um, he's a pretty secretive guy. Graduated from MIT in with a physics degree. Um, spent some time betting on sports games in Las Vegas using an algorithm that he developed until he told me the mob basically ran him out of town. Then he made his way to Wall Street. Um, he created this algorithm that at the time exploited this incredible niche in stock trading that, you know, every now and then you can generate some type of alpha that nobody else is looking at. And what he did was you remember when like there was a trading floor and like people would actually trade on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? It seems quaint now, but yes. It does. So think about this. There's a specialist who's at the post and they're managing their book of orders. They're buy and sell orders. And they have traders and brokers walking up to them saying, you know, I've got Fidelity here. They want to buy a half million shares. And I've got Vanguard. They want to sell a half million shares. So they're managing all these order flows throughout the day. And sometimes those specialists are actually uh, taking down stock for their own book, right? So they might, they can get long or short and they can make money. And for, you know, decades, if not millennium, specialist was like the most profitable business in the world, right? If you, if you had a like mafia profits, it was, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. So you took a little bit out of every trade, but then you also knew exactly who the buyers and sellers were. And, you know, there were times where it was like, you know, you couldn't lose on a trade. And so what he figured out was that throughout the day, there would be these anomalies that would happen where um, quotes, and these were traded in fractions back then. So if you had a stock that traded like an eighth, a, six, a teeny, which was a 16th or a quarter, uh, sometimes those spreads would blow out, right? So um, imagine a stock that's trading at 90 and a quarter, and, all this, and the offer is at 90 and a half. 90.25, 90.5 is what we say nowadays, right? Imagine all of a sudden the offer, which was at 90 and a half, is now 92. 
right? It means there's something going on in that market. It means that there is a big buyer that walked in and wants to buy stock. And when the specialist winds a quote like that, it's an advertisement to everybody else on the floor. Hey, look, I have this big buyer. I need anyone who has an axe or an, an account, essentially, to sell this stock to come over here and help me fill this order. Well, that was all well and good. And, and you could write a filter that kind of looked at these quotes throughout the day. But what he figured out was like there was one other function that he overlaid on it. And that was the idea of time. And time was essential because he figured out that if a specialist widened his quote and then printed it within 30 seconds, it meant that he didn't wait for those other traders to come over and help him fill the order. He filled it for himself. So he would go in and either buy or short the stock if there was a quick print because he knew that he was on board with the direction the specialist wanted to take the stock. And his accuracy rate on these trades was like astounding for like two years. I mean, he was positive on 95% of the days. There's an old, th the old thing in trading that it's like, you know, on your good days, you, you eat peanut butter and jelly on your down days, you like go eat steak and lobster, right? So like whenever he had a down day, we would like go out and eat steak and lobster. It was like a celebration. He actually had a, his losing, his winning streak was up. Now it's not something that's scalable, right? But like one person doing this, buying and selling a thousand shares here and there with the specialists is sort of like a lamprey, you know, kind of the, they, they, they kind of like feeding off whatever the shark eats. And he figured this out for years. But then of course, with automated trading and the idea that there weren't any specialists anymore, and funds that used to come in with like a million shares to sell would, would VWAP it, which means volume weighted average price. So like instead of selling a million shares, they would just like pepper you with like odd lots, 800, 1,000 here, 1,200 here. And from a, a perspective of a trader, you couldn't really discern what that information was. Um, but this is just an example of somebody who was able to exploit something that was right there in front of him and, and figure this out. And, and that's what I love about using AI right now for the markets. It's like you're exploiting things that are in front of you right now. This window might not stay open forever, right? Because the more and more people that are using AI to try to predict where the market's going, it's not going to work. Right. Um, <clears throat> but right now, with AI being so new and the technology being so new, it leaves the market rife for uh Right now, that window problems. is open. Right now, the door is open. Yeah. So last thing about Mr. Henry is that we looked at an office space, the 96th floor of the World Trade Center, 2000. And we went up there and he said, we are not working here. This place is a target. And he used some more profane language of it. So we didn't we didn't open an office there. So I think he might have saved my life. But the day that 9-11 hit, he had been walking underneath the plaza of the World Trade Centers. And he came into the office and we worked down at the end of Wall Street covered in soot. And he was like, at the time, the news was reporting that it was a small plane. And he said, that was not a small plane. I get chills thinking about this story. He, he said, and, and he used a lot more profane language. Basically, we are under attack. That was not a small plane. I saw it. I saw the fuselage. I saw the engine drop into the plaza. We got to get out of here. In the middle of his rant, the second plane hit. Shook our building, you know, and then we all got out of there. That was the last time he was ever in New York City. He went home that night, left the beaches somewhere uh, in South Carolina, and has never come back. So, you know, that's 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 the that was the end of his his saga. He still traded, but he he never came back to New York after that. Oh, didn't, right. didn't want to have to deal with uh, another terrorist attack after New York um, after nine eleven. So, yep, I'm sure he's out there somewhere. I don't think he's watching this, but uh, you know. 
thank you for saving my life and 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 uh persuading us not to open up an office on the 96th floor of the world trade center so uh, he may be very well running an AI bot that uh, searches for his name on the internet. He may find this video from his probably. Own AI usage. <laughs> He's probably living like in a remote corner of Thailand right now, doing something like that. Anyway, well, on that note, uh, Ian, th thanks for bringing that to our attention. We will put uh, put a link below to, to for anyone interested in, in learning about how they can use AI to to boost their stock returns. I really encourage you to give that a look. Um, it's these guys do excellent work. I've used their services for years. I have. I'm. I'm personally very excited about this. Mm -hmm. And on that note, Ian, we are out of time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing your insights on deflation, on AI, on uh, the, the elevator, the automation of elevators back in the automated elevator story. That's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> decades ago, and uh, you know what? What that portends for the future of entertainment today. So thanks for coming on and thanks to our viewers for logging in and we'll see you again next week. Until thanks then, for having me, Charles. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Until then, guys, go out and make yourself some money.